0: reading today is from Exodus 5, chapter uh, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 13. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least." So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they asked, when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us.
1: Then Moses turned to the Lord and he said, "O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The word of the Lord.
2: Let's pray as we stand. Almighty Father, will you be very active among us now? Will you help us? Uh, to hear your word as you intend it to be heard. Uh, Lots of ways that we can... uh, Lots of ways I could misspeak, lots of ways that we could mishear, lots of ways uh, that we could misunderstand who you are. But we want to re-understand you rightly, as you understand yourself. Uh, Dare we be so bold as to ask it? And we do. And we ask you to work in us so that we would see Jesus and see your purposes in our lives and in our world. And we ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, And it's helpful if you turn back to pages 8 and 9. Big ol' long, huge reading, isn't it? Um, But, you know, uh, it's a great story. Um, Today we're continuing our series in the book of Exodus, and today the action starts. So, Moses finally gets to Pharaoh and says the famous words, uh, let my people go. Which is great because it means the the emancipation process for Israel has begun. However, did you notice? Uh, Absolutely everything goes wrong. This entire reading, it's like a big old long debacle. Uh, um, So... And here's the thing. So in this reading, everything appears to go wrong. And everything appears to go wrong despite the fact that Moses pretty much does everything right. Uh, This is the first time we kind of see Moses, like, obeying. And here's the very first time he kind of does everything that God has told him to do. But nevertheless, everything seems to go real, real bad. So Pharaoh gets meaner. Uh, Work gets harder. Uh, Israel finds itself in an impossible situation, and absolutely everybody yells at Moses, um, which had to be uncomfortable for him. And what Moses does is he yells up the chain of command, so to speak. Did you notice that? Uh, Turn over to chapter 5, verse 22, over on page page 9. Moses turns to the Lord and says, Lord, Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Do you remember the last few weeks? I I didn't want to come. I did not volunteer for this, God. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. He is red-hot angry. And you can't blame him, can you? Uh, Moses here—he has—he—he's spent forty years in the desert. He comes back. He does. He begins to do everything that God has asked him to do. But yet, nevertheless, everything goes poorly, and it, it is super not cool. And so he yells at God and he says, "God, I have done everything right. What are you thinking? I didn't ask for this. You, God, are failing." I am on all the measurable matrices that I can think of. Do you ever pray that like that? Give it a go sometime. Here's what I wanna show you today. At this point, the liberation of Israel is just a debacle. Everything goes wrong. However, I wanna show you that in this reading, things are not entirely as they seem. It looks like everything's a failure. It looks like everything's a debacle. Israel's slavery gets worse before it gets better. However, behind the debacle, what I want to show you is that there's a tactic. The Lord has a bigger objective that the Lord is pursuing. The Lord has an objective with respect to Pharaoh. And the Lord has an objective with respect to Israel. And he is tactically allowing, maybe forcing things to look to go very, very badly from the outside temporarily in order for his larger objectives to be accomplished. And that's what I want to show you. We're going to look at two things. We're going to look at God's tactic with respect to Pharaoh. And then we're going to look at God's tactic with respect to Israel. And what we're going to find is that in both places, God is undermining their commitment to their own autonomy we're going to talk about what that means in order to open the way for a deeper redemption let me explain first of all what is god's tactic with respect to pharaoh now consider pharaoh for just a second and what i want to show you is that the lord is acting very justly towards pharaoh it's going to be very important that we remember this in the weeks to come the Lord, in this reading, gives Pharaoh a chance. He gives Pharaoh a chance to do the right thing, and Pharaoh responds in a way that publicly, irrefutably proves that he is a tyrant that needs to be removed. Come with me. Watch verse 1. Moses and Aaron went and say, says, they say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel... Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, notice here that at this point, this is the first meeting between Pharaoh and Moses. And when Moses goes into this meeting, he goes with nothing but words, a message, the message of the Lord. He comes with simply the word of God. There's no miracles. There's no coercive power. There is simply a message and a word. The Lord says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And it was a reasonable request. Did you notice that he doesn't say, let my people go so that we can have uh, liberation and we'll never come back? That's not what he says yet. That comes, but it's not what he says just yet. What he's saying here is, let my people have at least enough breathing space so that they can worship. And we know from uh, archaeological evidence that uh, Egypt periodically allowed these kinds of breaks in labor so that people could worship. The Lord treats Pharaoh very justly here. However, Pharaoh's response instantly opens up a window on his heart And in opening up a window on Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh opens up a window on the nature of sin. Look at verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So what does Pharaoh do? He immediately rejects the word of the Lord, and then he deflects blame, and that leads to a compounding of his guilt, and it ends in him self-condemning. Rejection, deflection, compounding guilt, and it ends in condemnation. Let me show you. First of all, he rejects God's word. Um, Do you notice, what is it in those first verses that offend Pharaoh? It does not appear that he's primarily offended by the idea of giving Israel just a little bit of breathing space. Pharaoh is primarily offended. Do you see that in verse 2? He's primarily offended by the whole concept of some God having authority over his life. Who's the Lord? Who does this God think that he is? I do not know him, means I do not recognize his authority. And I reject his command on principle, says Pharaoh. Now, it's important that we keep this in context. You remember chapter one. Um, we talked about how in previous regimes in Egypt, uh, you had pharaohs who had been willing to at least give the Lord a hearing. They had listened to the Lord and they had received all kinds of prosperity and benefit and blessing from at least giving the Lord a a, a hearing. You see that in the story of Joseph in in Genesis and so forth. However, in chapter one, there's a shift in policy. In chapter one, there's a shift in Pharaoh's so that the new regime of Pharaoh's say, No, 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 we do not, we will not listen to this God of the Hebrews. It's a regime of pharaohs who insist on their complete autonomy. Pharaoh is autonomous. Why do I use that word? He is his own law. He is marking out this sphere in his life and in his nation where he has autonomous authority. And he is deeply threatened by anything that might threaten that autonomous authority. And so just the idea of another authority having even input into his life repels him. It's his commitment to autonomy that requires him to reject the Lord's word out of hand. But that then leads to the second phase. Rejection leads to deflection. So what happens is he rejects God's word. And then he deflects the problem from himself onto the people he's trying to oppress. You see how that works? And you've got to understand the logic, if you could call it that, that's going on within his heart. Pharaoh's deepest fundamental commitment is himself. His deepest treasure is his own autonomy. And therefore, he has to protect that at all costs. Ends up, it will cost him everything. And the greatest way that he knows to protect his own autonomy is to blame Israel, to deflect. So look at verse 17. Do you notice how it presents Pharaoh as tantruming? This will happen a lot. Look at verse uh, 17. Um, Pharaoh says to the foreman of Israel, You are idle. You are idle. This is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. So watch his strategy here. Um, Pharaoh clings to his own autonomy. And he has to find a a good reason to reject the Lord besides that deep fundamental reason. And so what he does is, and it's quite skillful, I suppose, he, he shifts the conversation away from himself. And he even shifts the conversation away from the Lord, from this idea of a God. He, and what he does is he villainizes Israel, his slaves, and he accuses Israel without supplying any evidence that they are lazy. And he just says it a lot of times. He, he doesn't provide any evidence it will force productivity to decrease so he says uh you're lazy israel and you need to make the same number of bricks but i'm not going to give you the raw materials for making those bricks anymore i'm not going to give you straw and by implementing that policy it it uh causes production to fall and by production falling it reinforces the narrative that he wants to put forward which is israel's lazy do you see the strategy He rejects the word of the Lord and then he deflects blame in order to justify himself and it's all an effort to protect his own autonomy. He wants to be his own authority. Now pause here. Um, The Bible has some real insight into the way uh, at the very least corrupt leaders very often work. People in power, you know this, don't you? You recognize this, don't you? You tell me about it from time to time. Leaders in authority use these kinds of tactics every single day. And that's part of the reason why some of us are deeply suspicious of authority and power in almost every sphere. We look at authority and power around us and we hold out our hands like this and we say, I don't think I can trust them. Because when they get confronted, they tend to reject the confrontation, deflect blame to somebody else, and then justify themselves. And we see it happen time and time again. Do we not? We see it in the public sphere, in the private sector. We see it in schools, in churches, in government. We see it all around us, all the time. And it makes us mad. Does it make you mad? But if it makes you angry, Emmanuel, then that also helps us understand why God is so angry with sin. What am I talking about? Friends, Pharaoh is a case study, not just in bad leadership. He is that. But he is a case study in how sin works within every human heart Uh, if i had more time i could show you in the rest of the bible how pharaoh is used as an example in precisely this way what happens is we cling to autonomy over a particular sphere of our lives for most of us it's not a national you know it's not we don't have kingdoms okay but we have all of us kingdoms do we not kingdoms in our own little lives and we love our precious little kingdom And the word of the Lord comes and confronts us. And we end up instinctively, without ever thinking about it, responding in the way that Pharaoh does. We reject and we justify that rejection by deflecting. And even right now, just consider how easy it is to see that dynamic in others. I mean, watch the news this week and just do a little example. And write down in your little notebook how many times you get really, really mad because you see somebody doing, rejecting, and deflecting, and all of those sorts of things, and you get really igna- uh, ignatious? No, indignant. Ignatius is a very good saint. We should all read him. Um, we, <laughs> we get indignant about the whole thing, right? But it's easy to see in somebody else, but it's very difficult to see within ourselves because we all believe our own spin, But, Emmanuel, if we are rightly appalled in that dynamic in other people, then we've got to take very seriously just how appalled God is at that dynamic within ourselves. Now, go back uh, to Pharaoh, because it gets worse. Uh, Rejecting and deflecting in order to justify himself ends up compounding his guilt. So what happens is, you you read the story, Pharaoh demands Israel to make bricks without straw, uh, and then he beats them when they fail. His corruption compounds. It gets worse. His guilt gets heavier. Because he rejects the Lord and he deflects his own guilt. And the end is he condemns himself. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord tells Moses very ominously, you'll see what I do to Pharaoh. And what we're going to see is that Pharaoh's autonomy gets crushed under the Lord's justice. So there's a way in which this chapter is, can I say it this way? It's almost like the Lord is gathering evidence. The Lord is letting Pharaoh choose sin, corruption, his own deep commitment to his own autonomy. And the Lord is letting Pharaoh do that publicly so that there will be irrefutable public testimony of his corruption and his tyranny. And later on, that will be why the Lord justly judges him. This is going to be tough for us, but I want to say just right now, and this is going to bring up all kinds of uh, questions, let's talk about it, okay? Um, let this open up conversation, not close down conversation, okay? Um, this, the judgment of God is why we can trust him, and it's why we should fear him. It's why we can trust him, because this is going to teach us that uh, the Lord is deeply committed to justice, and you can only trust a God who is deeply committed to justice, just like you can only uh, trust a judge who is committed to justice. But it it will also explain why we must fear the Lord. I say that because we love our autonomy. And our love for our autonomy causes us to reject and deflect and compound with the best of them. And if you're sitting here thinking, you don't know what you're talking about. I don't do that. I'm like really good at not doing that. Um, then I would just suggest that you ask yourself whether or not you're deflecting right now very skillfully. Okay, now, because, friends, it's not just Pharaoh. Go to the story of Jesus. When Jesus shows up, almost everybody responds to Jesus in the same way that, that Pharaoh responds to the Lord, especially the religious leaders they reject him and then they deflect guilt away from themselves and back onto him. And then they compound their guilt by killing him. And in the end, they stand self-condemned. Okay. It's not just Pharaoh. It's the human heart. All right. That's the Lord's tactic with respect to Pharaoh. But what's the Lord's tactic with respect to his people, the people of Israel? Well, think of it from their perspective. So Israel is in this terrible, impossible situation where they have to make bricks without having the raw materials, which apparently is hard. And it's crippling. They're vulnerable. They're vulnerable economically and they're vulnerable politically. They were vulnerable otherwise, but now their vulnerability goes critical. It's a crisis. It's acute. What could possibly be the Lord's good tactic for them? Well, here's what I want to show you. There's a way in which the Lord is attacking and crushing their commitment to their own autonomy, just like he's addressing Pharaoh's. Only he's addressing Israel's autonomy with grace and with mercy. Albeit a severe kind of mercy. Let me show you what I mean. So, Pharaoh demands the impossible from Israel. Make bricks, but find your own straw. And Israel realizes that they are slamming up against the impossible, right? The demand that is upon them is greater than their resources to address it. So they slam up against their vulnerability, and they panic, and it's completely understandable. Now, watch what the Lord promises them right in the middle of everybody's panic. Look at chapter 6, verse 6, and look for the words, I will. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. Do you see the I wills? I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to my people, to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, look closely there. So on the one hand, the Lord is promising them political liberation and eventual prosperity is implied there. But he's promising something much, much deeper and greater than that. Look at verse 7. Do you see the phrase, I will take you to be my people? Now, it could also be translated, I will take you to myself to be my people. And what's important there is it's the language, we saw this last week, it's the language of intimacy and adoption. Why does this matter? It matters for this reason. The Lord's objective is bigger than simply political liberation. That's part of it, but not all of it. The Lord's objective is bigger than economic prosperity. That's good, but God's objective is bigger than that. God's aim for Israel is that they would become his family. Freedom, I've said this before, but we'll see it again. Freedom in the book of Exodus is not autonomy. Freedom in the book of Exodus is intimacy with the Lord, being his family. So the Lord here is leading Israel not on the quickest path to political liberation. If that's his aim, then this is a... This is a dead end. This is a, 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 a failure on the road. But that's not what, it, what, what is the case. The Lord is leading Israel on the quickest path, not just to political liberation, but to intimacy with himself. But here's the problem. In order for him to lead Israel to a place of deep intimacy with him, he has to teach them to trust. And trust and autonomy... Do not go together. So, here's the problem. Just like Pharaoh, Israel, despite the fact that they don't have the outward power that Pharaoh has, nevertheless, Israel is desperately frightened of losing what little autonomy they think that they have. They don't want to live by trust. They want to try to live as autonomously as they possibly can. So, that, so in fear, quite understandably, they cling, just like Pharaoh, to autonomy. Maybe if we appease Pharaoh a little bit, he'll let us keep a little bit of autonomy and control over our lives. Maybe if we work really, really hard and we please Pharaoh and we produce a lot of bricks, maybe that'll make Pharaoh kind of say, yeah, okay, you can have a little bit of autonomy. Maybe then I can feel like I have a little bit of control, at least in this little sphere that I have, which is my own life. At least I can have some economic, maybe, autonomy at least I can eat tomorrow and so in fear they cling to this phantom and mirage of autonomy and all their instincts say if there's any path to freedom this must be the path to freedom and when that's taken away they look at Moses and they say how dare you you have given a sword into the hand of Pharaoh and he's going to get us with it you can understand where they're coming from can you not However, to uh, quote uh, a theologian called Albus Dumbledore, uh, he said this, the trouble is humans have a knack for choosing precisely those things that are worst for them. Fear-based autonomy is an obstacle to intimacy with the Lord. And so that autonomy has to die in order for the Lord to achieve his objectives. And therefore, starting now and all the way through the book of Exodus, the Lord will, each scene, shut every door to autonomy other than himself. The Lord, in this story, breaks the alliance between Pharaoh and the Israelite foreman. Verse 19. The Lord shuts the door on this dream that Israel can kind of work their way to some level of autonomy and freedom. And the Lord here allows them on purpose to feel their scarcity and their vulnerability so that at the end of the day, Israel is left with nothing except the Lord and with him everything. Now, once again, look into your own heart. Because, friends, Pharaoh's heart hates Trust and giving up autonomy. And Israel heart, Israel's heart hates giving up autonomy and trust. Do you think your heart is different? And so very often what happens is we, 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 we look for a little loophole, do we not, in our lives? Um, if we can find something to trust about ourselves, we will prefer trusting ourselves over and against the Lord almost every time. And you know the usual suspects. We, we, we look to our, and we never, we usually don't even know we're doing it. We, we trust our money, our work, our success, our reputation, uh, the pursuit of pleasure, power, whatever it is, we trust this little thing in our lives, whatever it might be, and we cling to it because we say it's gonna give us autonomy and it's gonna make us feel like we're in control, and you almost never know that you're doing that until it gets taken away, and then you panic. But the trouble is, as long as we trust those things, we will never know the Lord. And without knowing the Lord, we will never truly be free. And so for Israel, the Lord gives them a gift of scarcity. He gives them a gift of vulnerability. And from their perspective, it feels like a debacle. It feels like God is failing them. But by denying them prosperity for the short term, the Lord can give them intimacy with him for forever the lord's best gift to israel is not prosperity the lord's best gift to israel is not independence the lord's best gift to israel is himself but they'll never believe that's true until every other alternative fails and by the end of our reading they're they're not there yet but god will get them there a portion of them and it'll be a fit and start the whole way Do you ever pray like Moses? God, what are you doing? Because as far as I can see, God, I am doing everything right. Why is everything going wrong? Why are these things that I love? And they're not even sins. Aren't these good gifts? Why are these being taken away from me? Why have you not given me what I want you to give me? Why aren't you giving me the kickbacks I expect when I'm doing everything right for you? Jesus knows what that feels like, because he did literally everything right, like without hyperbole, and, and, and then and he got a cross. He didn't get a good career, and he didn't get a fulfilling relationship. He got a cross. He did everything right, and when everything appeared to go wrong. And one of the things that that means is that he can sympathize with you. He loves you. Do you know that? And, and the pain of losing those things that are so precious to us, that is not lost on our Lord. He lost his family too. Do you know that? They thought he was crazy. What have you lost? He loves you. But keep going with Jesus because he did everything right. He suffered everything wrong. But, but, you know, it wasn't a debacle. It looked like it. Everybody thought it was, especially his enemies. It wasn't a debacle. There was a name. There was, there was an objective, a great one. He, he suffered all of that so that God the Father could take you to himself and adopt you as his own forever so that you could be free, so that you could have something better than autonomy. Jesus suffered upon the cross to give you real freedom, not autonomy, but intimacy with the Father. And that is the deepest desire of your soul. You think it'll be satisfied somewhere else? It it won't. But it will be in him. But all that means that there is only one path to freedom, not many, but one. There's only one way to escape the, the cycle of Pharaoh, and that is... We have to find ourselves at the foot of the cross of Christ. That is our only path to freedom. And so the Lord will at times, in his kindness, take away things we hold and cling to, even very often good things. I'm not just talking about sins, obvious sins. I'm talking about clinging to good things that aren't Christ. He will sometimes take those things away from us until we find ourselves naked and vulnerable and frightened in our scarcity but kneeling at the cross of christ because that is the safest place that we could possibly be and that in the short term will feel difficult but in the long term it will be the source of our eternal joy so if you're now right now in that midst of frightened panic trying to cling to your autonomy and if you see jesus christ from the cross saying come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest, then do not reject that word. That word is for you. It is coming to you straight from the the mouth of God, proven through the death of his Son. And he desires to give you that which will make you free. And you will find that the Lord is more trustworthy than you can possibly imagine, and that your future is more glorious than you could ever dream and he will take you to himself, and you will be his child forever, and you will be free, and you will never regret it. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emanuelanglicannyc.com give.